Good morning, church. It's Daylight Savings Time Sunday on the bad end where we lose the hour, right? That's why uh, first hour was a little bit smaller. Everybody came to second and third so you could sleep in, right? What a blessing though, huh? Um, Noah, if you would, go ahead and throw that picture up on the screen. I want you to enjoy this work of art with me. Um, I love all things carbohydrate, so I think this is a beautiful picture of delicious bread. Um, I could probably eat that whole loaf without even trying, and that's not an exaggeration. But I, I want you to think about this with me, right? Uh, it's, it's not in this picture, but just imagine that there's some steam gently rising off this bread because it just came out of the oven, right? And the slices in this picture are way too thin. They need to be about an inch thick, right? And the bread is, it's so warm, like it kind of melts before your knife as you're uh, sawing through it. And you take about a tablespoon and a half of butter and you just, I mean, you slather it thick, right? And it melts to where it saturates the bread. So when you take a bite, the, the butter kind of runs out, right? And when you take that bite, that, that crust is crispy. It's golden brown to perfection. And you can taste uh, the saltiness of the butter and the sweetness of the bread. It's delicious. Anybody hungry yet? <laughs> Who's craving toast? Like, that's the first thing I want to do when I get home is drop a piece in the toaster. Um, but Jesus, in John chapter 6, he'll talk this morning about this idea that he is the bread of life. And, and I feel like in our culture, we're so used to running to the grocery store and they have everything that we could ever want that we forget this idea that for the people in first century Israel, bread was literally the sustenance of life. And we miss the beauty of Jesus being the life-giving, sustaining source of all things in, in his declaration that he is the bread of life. But hopefully as I described that bread and what it's like to partake, hopefully it aroused a little bit of hunger in you. Because here's what I want to uh, focus on a little bit before we dive into the text is the power of hunger. I mean, have you ever noticed how powerful hungry is, or hunger is as a, as a driver in your life? I'm convinced that there's a number of the conflicts I've had in my life, like in my marriage with my lovely wife, Lauren, that could be reduced down to simply being hangry. You know this word, right? You're so hungry, you're angry. And it, usually it's on my side because when I'm, when I'm hungry, I, I just, I don't do well. And, and by the way, neither do my kids. Uh, we've had a number of meltdowns when dad forgets to pack snacks somewhere or lunch is late. It just doesn't go well because when we're hungry, it affects a lot of things. There's, there's power to hunger. Uh, and actually, there's, there's good science to back this up. There was a study done uh, where they took a number of animals in a laboratory setting and they monitored their blood levels and hormonal levels. And they found that when these animals experienced hunger, uh, the hormonal level levels indicating a stress and anxiety response went up. And so there's good science behind this idea of being hangry. When you're so hungry, it does something to your mood and to your disposition. It affects you. There's power to it, right? I, I think I've maybe experienced this most profoundly when I've had the opportunity to go on backpacking trips. Um, in college, that was a, a cheap way to travel. So a lot of what I did was backpacking. Uh, pastor Dave, our uh, community life pastor, he and I did a lot of those trips together in college. And on one particular trip, there were four of us, Dave and I and two other friends, we decided to do a hundred mile section of the Appalachian Trail through the Smoky Mountains. And the thing about backpacking is you never pack totally sufficiently, right? Because when you backpack, everything's going on your back. You have to carry it all and you're sleeping on a tent. 
Um, I think backpacking is a chiropractor's dream, right? Because usually when I'm done, like nothing feels great because of the weight on your back and sleeping on the ground. So you try to pack as, as light as you reasonably can, which means usually you're packing just enough food to get by. And the food's not great food. Like I didn't pack a loaf of bread like that, although on every trip I immediately wished I would have. Uh, most of the food is like freeze-dried stuff that you add water to and reconstitute, and it's like sort of edible, right? It's like not great, but you're not going to starve. You'll survive. And the challenge with this is every day, you know, we'd get up, put a 30-pound pack on, and we would hike between 10 and 15 miles every day, and you're just burning calories at such a rate that you're always starving. And by day three, I noticed a distinct turn in our conversations, right? I would be chugging down a chalky protein shake. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea to wake up to in the morning. Horrible idea. Don't ever camp and drink cold protein shakes in the morning. That's bad, right? So I'm drinking this down wishing all I want for this is to be a stack of hot pancakes with warm syrup and melted butter, right? And I noticed as we hiked, our conversations were things like, what's the first meal you want to eat when we get off the trail? I think we should eat a pizza each, right? A whole one to each of us. And we started to talk about food and and we would stop at a beautiful mountain vista and it wasn't quite this bad, but it felt this bad. And I would look out at the mountains and think, man, those snow-capped mountains, they look like mashed potatoes with rivers of butter or like a hot fudge sundae, right? Your mind is so fixated on food because that hunger response is so powerful. And so we get to this this, uh, beautiful mountain overlook and and Dave and our friend decide that they're going to stay and, and me and our other friend, we, we decide we're going to head to the campsite. And th- this place where we were camping, they have these shelter systems in the Smoky Mountains. It's like a three-walled cabin, just enough to not really be effective at anything. Um, but it's like dorm style. So you're in there with a whole bunch of, of random people. And this particular night, we had planned to meet up with another group of friends that just happened to be hiking a similar section of trail. And we were all going to converge. So we were kind of excited to see some other friends. So I walk into this uh, lean-to shelter thing, and all I see is uh, one other hiker, and I see this stack of food. And on it is a note, and it's addressed to me and Dave and our other two friends, and it just says, hey, one of us got sick. We hiked out. We left you all our food. And I was like, this is like manna from heaven, right? I'm starving. And the best part about it was Dave and our other friend, they stayed behind, which means we got to pick the best food. So it's like plain rice, Dave can eat that, fettuccine Alfredo, yes please, this will be mine, right? And it's at this time I become aware of like there's another hiker in the shelter, right, who's also hungry. And I look over and he's like just staring, like jaw dropped at the food. And part of me wanted to like, I'm just going to turn this way so I don't have to, I don't want to see those guilty eyes as I eat. Literally I pounded three packaged meals in one sitting without even thinking about it. And it felt great to finally have that hunger just satiated, to have a full stomach again after you've been constantly hungry for five or six days. There's something really powerful about it because hunger is a powerful thing. It's a powerful driver in our lives. So here's the question I want to ask you on a broader level. And I want you to wrestle with this this morning as we walk through this text is what are you hungry for? When you think about your life holistically, when you think about your life spiritually, what is the deep hunger of your life? What is the thing that drives you? What are you expending your energy in life pushing towards and pursuing? What is your life about? What are you hungry for? Because as we walk through this text, time and time again, Jesus is going to have us come face to face with that question of our hunger. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. It says this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God, the father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then we give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. If you remember last week, uh, Pastor Steve talked about this idea that Jesus' just standard way of operating is through the miraculous. That he's more than capable of doing the miraculous. It's just, it's how he functions. And if you remember, as Steve walked through the text, we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and we talked about Jesus walking on the water. And so right on the tail of those two accounts is this moment where Jesus has walked across the water. He's crossed the lake. And in the people who were there who watched him feed the 5,000, they've gone in search of him. And when they find Jesus, um, I, I think it's amazing this question they ask, right? Here is the God of all the universe. You've just watched him feed 5,000 people. Uh, you've just watched him walk across the water. And the first question they ask him in verse, 20, or verse 25, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? What a, what a very profound question. Like, they went in search of him. They're like, how did, you, how did you beat us here? And, and Jesus, I, I love how Jesus consistently speaks to the heart of the issue. Did you notice that he doesn't even answer their question? I, I thought that was fascinating. He doesn't say, uh, well, I guess I've been here a couple hours, 1230? Right? He, he doesn't even respond to that. Notice what he says, though. He says in verse 26, he says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. And then he says something profound. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures. And so what Jesus rather incisively pinpoints is that these people who've come in search of him, they're not searching for him because they believe he's the son of God, because they believe he's the Messiah. All they know is that Jesus gave them bread and they want more of that bread. And Jesus says, here's the reality. 
I, I met this very tangible physical need of yours. You're not coming to, to ask about these deeper things that I have to offer you. All you want is for me to give you more bread and to tend to this one very tangible physical need. And what Jesus is attempting to point out to them is how much more he has to offer them. He's trying to teach them and he's trying to tell them, I have something to offer you that's deeper than just physical bread. Not that physical bread is bad. Bread is good. I love bread, right? Jesus is the bread of life. He's going to talk about that in a second. Bread is not bad. The problem is it's not enough. Jesus wants to point them to the deeper reality. And that raises again this question in us, uh, what are you working for? What are you hungry for? When Jesus makes that statement, work for what endures, that brings to mind for me that question, what am I working for? And by working for, I mean, what are you expending the energies of your life on? What is the thing that you're pursuing? And often I think the things that we're hungry for reveal what we're working for. What is it that you're hungry for? Jesus wants to encourage the disciples not just to think about the very tangible things that are in front of them, but to think about the deeper hunger and the deeper reality and the fulfillment and the redemption and the hope that Jesus can bring. So let me ask you that question again. What are you hungry for? I want to suggest to us this morning some just core life hungers that I think drive us as we function in life. I think often there's a desire for significance. Right? We want to know that our life matters, that it has purpose, that it has meaning. I think there's often a, a hunger for intimacy and connection. We want to know that we're capable of deep and meaningful relationships. I think often significance comes as we live in deep and meaningful relationships with other people. I think often we're driven by uh, a search for safety and provision. We want to know that we can take care of ourselves and our loved ones I think often a hunger in our life is to live out our identity in freedom, to be the people who Jesus has created us to be, to have the courage to be genuinely and authentically yourself. I think often one of the core drivers in life is just a searching for fulfillment, to find the sense of flourishing. And I think as we look at life, and we could make this list could go on and on. You could add other things to it. This isn't all inclusive. I get that. But I think at some level in our life, these are hungers that drive us, a search for significance, a search for meaningful relationships, a search for safety and provision, and to know that we're cared for, to, to be the courage to be ourselves, and, and to just feel fulfilled as, as we do life. Now, the problem is not that these hungers are bad. The problem is that we often fill right hungers in wrong ways. And so what happens is rather than, than searching for significance, what we find is we settle instead for searching for power and status. Instead of intimacy and connection, we settle for sex. Instead of safety and provision, we, we find ourselves hung up by searching for material and, and money things. Instead of the identity and freedom that we want to live out, we live our life in slavery to searching for acceptance. And instead of flourishing, we find ourselves driven by achievement. Here's what I want to suggest to you. I'm not saying that these things are bad. They're not bad. There's nothing inherently wrong with power and status. Sex is a great thing. The church is often historically not done well teaching about sex. Some of you are not sure I should be saying it in church maybe even, right? But the reality is this is a beautiful part of how God has created marriage and it... And it 
So much there theologically that's rich about the beauty of marriage and two becoming one. The problem is not that these things are bad and these things are good. The problem is we forget these realities point to deeper hungers. Do you see it? So we have these appetites that we think are the things in and of themselves. And so rather than searching for significance, we attempt to fill that hunger through a search for power and status. Rather than finding true and deep relationships, we give in to our culture that that is okay with casual sex and a hookup culture. And, And so many people use sex as a way to find validation and fulfillment. If somebody will receive me sexually, that must mean that I have something to offer. Or or we're so worried about safety and provision, we think if I just get enough material things and enough money in the bank, I'll feel safe. And we struggle with the freedom to be ourselves. And so we spend our lives in slavery to searching for acceptance to other people. And so we become who they want us to become. But once they accept us, we know that they've only accepted a certain version of ourselves that we've projected. And so acceptance becomes elusive. And, and what we want is to feel fulfilled. That deep down gnawing hunger, we want to feel fulfilled. And for some of us, we're locked into an achievement mindset. We want that next award, that next recognition, that next accolade. And so we live our lives in pursuit of these things. Not wrong, but we forget that they point to something deeper. And so we tend to fill these right hungers through wrong methods. And as we attempt to fill these hungers, I I think there's often three ways that we do it. I think we attempt to fill our, our hungers through filling, numbing, or forgetting. And so for some of us, we think, okay, I'm searching for significance. I've settled for power and status. And for some of us, what you realize is as you achieve the next level of power and status, it doesn't, it doesn't quite bring the fulfillment that you hoped. So, so we keep pushing and we keep pushing and we keep pouring our life into that thing. And, and we overindulge trying to fill our life with that thing. Uh, I'm not proud of this, but on more than one occasion in my life, Pastor Dave was present. I have eaten a half dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. And it wasn't even that hard. (laughs) I could have gone more, but I felt like it was socially unacceptable, right? Can I just tell you how sick I felt afterwards? Oh my goodness. It was awful. Like, as I'm eating them, I thought, this is amazing because the donuts, they just, the glaze, I don't know what that stuff is, uh, but it's amazing. The problem is afterwards, my body felt absolutely terrible. I wasn't hungry. There was something in my stomach, but I felt just absolutely sick. Like, I think I would have felt better if it all would have come back up, right? Now, here's how smart I am. I didn't learn, and I've done that more than once, as I said, right? I should learn from that. But but what that tells me is that we can fill ourselves with the wrong things and be malnourished. You feel full, but your body isn't nourished in the things that it needs. And what's true physically, I think, is true spiritually. We can fill our lives with a lot of things, but they don't bring the kind of perspective and rooting and nourishment that we desire. So you can be full without being fulfilled. Right? You can invest your time and energy in a lot of things, and that fulfillment and flourishing that we're so desirous of still remains elusive. For some of us, though, rather than trying to pour our life into these things and, and fill it up with this, some of us just try to numb it. Whether that's through addiction, whether that's through just living an unreflected life where you come home from work and you throw on Netflix and you eat a frozen pizza and you just kind of go through the days in a state of, of, of numbness. 
Others of us, when I say forgetting, what I mean by that is, is some of us, we've written off one of these things. For some of us, you, you've been burned in relationships, and so you feel like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have the kind of close, deep relationships I want, and so we sort of push them away, and we react to them, and we become bitter and abrasive people who put up walls with others because we've sort of written off that deep hunger that we know that we need. And so we attempt to fill, numb, or forget some of these incredibly deep hungers that are part of, I think, how God has created us and designed us to live. Jim Carrey says it this way, right? He's, he's an actor who has achieved, I mean, incredible amounts of wealth. At one time, I don't know if he still is, was one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. I mean, multiple tens of millions per movie. He has status. He has fame. He said this. He said, I've often said that I wish people could realize all their dreams, the wealth and fame, so that they can see it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Think about that. And that's somebody who's achieved it all. He said, I often wish, I've often said, I wish people could realize their dreams, their wealth and fame, so they can see it's not where they're going to find their sense of completion. In other words, what he says, that, that elusive ladder that we're all climbing, trying to get somewhere, he says, you're going to get up there and realize it's not the fulfillment and the hope that you desire. There's an emptiness and a hollowness to that. And so the question is, what does fulfill? Right? If these things are not the fullness and completion in and of themselves, if these methods don't bring the fullness of these hungers, how, how do we begin to find fulfillment? And this is precisely what Jesus is teaching the people of Israel in John chapter 6. Notice what he says in verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, catch this, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In other words, Jesus says, I will bring the fullness and completion of the deep hungers in your life. And Jesus' declaration that he is the bread of life is profound and far-reaching in terms of the implications for our life. And so what we recognize in Jesus' claim is that he reveals something about his identity. Notice how when Jesus says, he declares, I am the bread of life. Did you notice a few verses later that people start to grumble? Bread of life. We know Joseph, his dad. What does he mean came down from heaven? Who's this Jesus guy? Right? And they're grumbling among themselves. By the way, I love that Jesus tells them, stop grumbling among yourselves. I love Jesus' candor sometimes. Like he, he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't walk past it. He goes, guys, Stop grumbling. Let's, let's do this, right? He wants to have that conversation. I love that. But they're grumbling among this. So, and part of me is like, why is it such a big deal that he claims to be the bread of life? Part of what's fascinating about the gospel of John is throughout this gospel, Jesus makes seven declarative I am statements. And, and when Jesus makes that statement, I am, this is for, for the Jewish audience that he's speaking to, they would hear the language of Exodus 3, by the way, this chapter in John 6 is filled with Exodus language, the story of manna from heaven. They hear this Exodus language of Exodus 3 where God reveals himself to Israel and says, I am who I am. So when they hear Jesus saying, I am the bread of life in that declarative way, in the way that it's written in the original language, it harkens back to that Exodus 3 language. In other words, Jesus is revealing his identity as God in the flesh. And they're like, whoa, 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 what do you, you are God come down from heaven? That, that's what they're wrestling with. And what Jesus reveals, not just about his identity, is that he offers life. He says, I'm here to minister to you, to bring life. You're hungry and you're searching for the thing that brings fulfillment. You want to know the deepest fullness of life. Jesus says, it's found in me. 
Elsewhere, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's why he came. But the fullness of life is found only in him. And he reveals to us his mission. His mission is to do the will of the Father. Verse 40 tells us the will of the Father. It's so that everyone who looks to the Son, believes in him, shall have eternal life and be raised up at the last day. This is what Jesus came to do. And what we recognize is that it's Jesus who saves us from our sins. It's Jesus who sustains our life of faith. And it's Jesus who ultimately brings fulfillment. Last week when we took communion, you heard Pastor Steve read from the the liturgy that's in the the Wesleyan Book of Discipline. Let, Let me just read this for you. Listen to this language of sustenance and fulfillment. When the body is broken, it says, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, May it preserve your soul and body into everlasting life. Take and eat this, remembering that Christ died for you. Catch this, and feed on him in your heart by faith and with thanksgiving. And feed on him by, by faith in your heart with thanksgiving. What we recognize is that it's Jesus and his life in us, the spirit of God dwelling in us, that gives us the grace to sustain our life of faith. Faith is not something that we do on our own. Every time that we take communion and we remember the broken body of our Lord and his shed blood, we're remembering that that was offered for us for the life of the world. And so what we recognize is that these realities find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. It's only Jesus who can satisfy these things. And here's what happens. When we find fulfillment of these things in Jesus, what happens is the methods that we've used to fill the hunger, these things become transformed and redeemed and we engage them differently. Let me, let me show you what I mean. In Philippians chapter two, Paul teaches uh, about Jesus and uses Jesus as an example of humility. And in Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus, who being in very nature God, he has power, he has status, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And what Paul teaches in Philippians 2 is that Jesus had power, Jesus had status, but what did he do? He took the very nature of a servant. And so what happens when we look at something like significance and we realize that finding significance and purpose in life is fulfilled in Jesus, it transforms our hunger for power and status. And rather than searching for this for an end in and of itself, we realize that in Jesus, our power, status, and influence are to be used on behalf of others, to pour into others with a servant disposition. Does that make sense? These things are not ends in and of themselves. They point to something deeper. And when they find their fulfillment in Jesus, these things are redeemed and transformed. When we recognize that it's Jesus who saves and sustains and fulfills. Now, here, here's the question. And, and I love that in this passage of Scripture, the, the people of, of Israel ask it for us. Verse 28, so Jesus just told him, work for what fulfills and what sustains to eternal life. Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? So in other words, they say, okay, Jesus, you're telling us to do the work that sustains to eternal life. They go, so what are these works? What are we supposed to do? And I think for us as modern American people, we like that question because it's like, okay, give us the six steps, like the plug and play things. What are, what are the four principles? What's the self-help philosophy to do these works that God has called us to do? Tell me and we'll do them. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus answered the work. 
Notice that change from plural. What are the works we have to do? Jesus says, the work is this. The one simple thing you have to do is this, to believe in the one he sent. Jesus said, there's, there's no like deep strategy of like, you got to do these 10, you know, works things and, and then maybe you can get there. He goes, no, 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 Jesus says, it's simple. Do one thing. All you have to do is believe in me, Jesus says. And, and here's the beautiful reality. As you read through the rest of this passage, Jesus will fa- say things like this. He'll say, um, as I told you, you've seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, he says, it's the Father who's drawing people and bringing people to Jesus. What that tells me is that even our faith is not a work of our own. That even our faith response is a gift of God's grace. John Wesley would call this the doctrine of provenient grace. This idea that God's grace is already at work in your life. That God is empowering you to even begin to want to respond to this invitation of the Father to come to Jesus. And so here's the reality. All we have to do is, is, is submit and surrender our lives in response to that grace over to Jesus to believe in him. I love the simplicity of this, that to find fulfillment, it's not about working harder, striving harder. In some sense, it's about giving up and giving in, giving up our search for significance and giving our lives over to Jesus. And here's the reality that to believe is to trust our lives in full surrender to him. And often that means giving up our agenda. And so much of our agenda is driven around things like this. Again, not bad, but when these become the end in and of themselves and life collapses around these things, it becomes off balance and we become malnourished because these always point to something deeper. But there's challenges in the process, right? And, and the, the people of Israel, they, they see and experience these challenges. Okay, yeah, you're telling us we need to believe, but here, here's the problem. I think the first challenge is this. We, we often want salvation but not surrender. So there's this tension there between salvation and surrender. So think back to the beginning of the passage where the people, they come to find Jesus, and Jesus tells them, he goes, listen, I know that you only found me because I gave you physical bread to eat. In other words, they still don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what he can offer them. All they know is that they want more of that bread. In other words, they want just enough Jesus to fix their problems, but not enough Jesus to call them to surrender and sacrifice. And and I think for some of us, we like that idea. We like the self-help philosophy version of Jesus. We want just enough Jesus to fix our problems, not enough of him to call us to surrender, not enough uh, of him to say, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and come after me. I, I don't know if I want to go that far, but Jesus, if you could fix all the problems, that would be great. But here's the problem. I'm not going to tell you that that Jesus is going to fix all your problems when you follow him. That's simply not true. I think Jesus, what I know to be true is that Jesus walks with me through my problems. What I do know is that he can transform and redeem them for his purposes and for his end. He doesn't fix them all. I think for some of us, we've got to get past that point of saying, just enough, but not too much, and give our lives over fully in surrender, cooperating with God's grace that's already in our life. I think the second challenge is this. uh, It's it's proof and perspective. So here's what happens uh, in verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Are you serious? What, what do they ask Jesus? They go, okay, Jesus, we're, we're with you. We're with you. Uh, just give us one more sign. Can, can we trust you? 
Let's see, uh, John chapter 2, he changed water into wine at the wedding in Canaan and Galilee. John chapter 6, in this chapter alone, he's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on the water. And part of me is like, what other sign do you want? You know, but, but their perspective is off. They're not mindful of all, of all the things that they've just witnessed Jesus doing. They're not thinking about that. They want one more additional sign. Jesus, just prove yourself. And there was a rabbinical tradition at this time that was being taught that when the Messiah arrived, one of the signs that he was indeed the Messiah is that the Messiah would open again the heavens and bring down manna. And so part of what they're doing is saying, okay, prove you're the Messiah, bring down some more manna. And Jesus is trying to tell them, what I'm offering you is something deeper than physical bread to fill physical hunger. I'm offering you the bread of life to fill the deepest longings of your heart. And that's what they're not getting. And for some of us, that invitation to sacrificially surrender our plan and purpose into God's hands, we're saying, yeah, 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 Jesus, um, could you just prove yourself as trustworthy in my life? And we have a perspective that's off because we've missed all of the things that God has already done to show himself gracious, to show himself as more than worthy to meet our provision. And for so many of us, we're standing there asking God for one more proof, but it's because we've missed what God has already done to show himself faithful. The third challenge is this, it's receptivity or rebellion. And I think it's a question of, will we receive this invitation of Jesus to accept him, to receive him as the bread of life, or will we turn and walk away? And a little bit, this is a teaser for next week. Pastor Steve is going to finish out John chapter 6 and talk about a number of disciples who they couldn't go there. This was hard teaching to accept. But I think that question is before us. What do we do with this invitation from Jesus to receive him as the bread of life and to experience in him the things that we're so desperately searching for? So how do we respond to this? I want to leave you with three things this morning. The first is this. I want you, uh, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to think about what it is to respond today to his invitation you don't know him, maybe you're not walking with him, but you, you, you feel the conviction even now of the Spirit saying, I want to surrender my life over to him. I, I pray that you would take this moment to respond to that invitation. Secondly, for some of us, we need to release things that we've been pursuing that aren't bringing fulfillment. For some of us, we have been pushing headlong into pursuing things that we think are going to bring fulfillment, that we think are going to bring uh, a sense of filling that hunger at the core of our being. And we've poured our life energy into that and we realize it's not bringing fulfillment. And for some of us, we just need to release that over to Jesus today and say, Jesus, I surrender this to you and I will steward it as you direct me to. Third, here's where the homework comes. I I want us to spend some time rejoicing this week. So I, I want you to do this simple practice this week. Two times this week, I want you to take your phone and set a timer for 10 minutes. The first time, do it early in the week. Maybe this afternoon, it's beautiful outside, so go sit outside somewhere. Set a timer for 10 minutes, and I want you to just write down everything that you have to be thankful for. Where where has God shown himself faithful in your life? Just spend 10 minutes being grateful for how God has proved himself over and over of all the things that he's done. And then here's what I want you to do later in the week, say Friday or Saturday, I want you to set another timer for 10 minutes because here's what I think might happen. That first time, say Saturday or tonight or Monday, the first time you set that timer for 10 minutes, you're going to write feverishly and think, oh, I bet it's been five minutes. Look, I bet it's like 30 seconds. It's like, uh, I'm not sure what else to write. My hope then, when we come back at the end of the week 
and you set that second timer for 10 minutes is that we spend this week going, okay, I know Friday, I'm gonna do that again. So I'm gonna be aware this week of where I see God's hand at work. And what I hope this does for us is it begins to cultivate an awareness of the little things God brings into our life each and every day, things that we could be grateful for and have a a heart of praise and worship and gratitude that we just simply gloss right over. So I challenge you to do that this week as we begin to cultivate that heart of gratitude that recognizes we don't need more proof that Jesus is faithful. Maybe we just need a better perspective to see what he's already done. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess and we recognize, Jesus, that you truly are the bread of life. Jesus, that it's you who fulfills and sustains. It's you, Jesus, in in whom life is truly found. And Father, there's so many other things that in their tangibility, they feel so much more pressing. And it's so easy to get lost in the pursuit of all of these things. And they're not bad things. But God, I pray that you would help us to understand that life finds its fullness only in you, Jesus. And so I pray this morning, Father, that we would respond to your invitation of faith. I pray this morning that we would release things that we have been holding on to that are not bringing life, that we would surrender them over to you. And Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who rejoice and offer you praise and worship and gratitude in response to all that you've done for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.